Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. AI policies. It's not just China in the US. Japan and Korea and Canada too also have development plans of their own. To compare, contrast, and contemplate the future, today we have Dongwoo Kim, project specialist at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada on technology policy and former Yenching scholar. Uh, later on the show, we'll also be talking about the latest developments in South Korea Japan policy, implications for China, as well as Canada China policy. Dongwu, welcome to China Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. So, Dongwu, before we get deep into AI, would you mind explaining a bit about your a bit about your your background and maybe help folks place your accent? <laughs> yeah, so uh, I'm originally from uh, South Korea, as you can tell from my last name, but I uh, grew up in Nicaragua, uh, so I spent close to a decade over there, um, and then I moved to I was in the states for a year, uh, then moved to Canada for my last year of high school, ended up doing my undergrad and master's in Canada, did a year in China and came back to Canada. So as of now, uh, I've become a naturalized Canadian citizen. Canada is home for me. Yeah. And I work on uh, Canada, Asia policy research. I'm a, li- a little offended you didn't, you didn't pick the US, but I understandable. Canada is a beautiful place. Oh, it's, uh, it's pretty great. Where did the China interest fit into all of this? So actually, like back in undergrad, I tried to stay away from uh, any like Asia related courses because I didn't want to get pegged as the Asian guy doing uh, research on Asia. But when I started my graduate studies at uh, University of British Columbia, I took a course on global China. So like the implications of rise of China and uh, what that means for Canada and the rest of the world. And, you know, I got hooked and uh, there was an opportunity to go to China through the Yenching program. Luckily I got in. And uh, as I spent more time in China, I became more interested in it. So I applied for a fellowship um, here at the Asia Pacific Foundation to do further research on Asia policy. And uh, that's what I've been doing uh, so far. So it kind of happened without intending. So now's a good time, I think, to talk a little bit about what you guys are doing at the Asia Pacific Foundation, as well as the key uh, research topics in Canada, Asia, Canada, China relations. The Asia Pacific Foundation was established back in 1984 at a time when China was opening up. And then there was an urgency to understand uh, Japan, which was an economic powerhouse. So we were established in order to you know, provide uh, analysis about the Asian region to Canadian stakeholders. We just went through a strategic realignment, but the kind of research that we do, um, we have a por- uh, research portfolio on trade, investment, and innovation. So we have an investment monitor that analyzes the inflow and outflow of um, investment from Asia into Canada and vice versa. And uh, we also have a portfolio that looks at Asia competence. So that is knowledge of Asia or training in Asia for young Canadians. And also we do research on uh, sustainability. So one of the projects that uh, our team launched was the EcoCity Tracker uh, for China, in which uh, environmental data at the city level was analyzed. And that data is supposed to help Canadian clean tech companies find opportunities in China. So we do a bunch of different things in order to serve as a catalyst for engagement with Asia, uh, like a bridge to uh, a bridge to Asia for Canadians. Sounds really cool. I have far too many people based in DC on this show. So great to great to come at these questions from a different perspective. So um, AI policy, why are all the young people uh, who are sort of interested in China researching this thing? Do you think we are at peak AI policy? Oh, what do you think? What's your answer to that? I was wondering. I don't know. I mean, I, I think what happens is 
you know, it's fun doing things where there aren't people who are 50 years old who can credibly claim to be more authoritative than you. So um, it's fun to have a potentially new place to carve out. Um, but on the other hand, I think there are lots of other things which are actually more important than AI policy going on today and in the future of, of U.S.-China relations, but are just sort of like less sexy and aren't, um, uh, you know, aren't creating billion-dollar companies and on the on the front pages of Wired or whatever. But mm-hmm. uh, am I missing something? Should this actually be number one on everyone's um, research agenda? Um, I mean, there is a there is a research topic for everyone. Um, I feel like. This is certainly an issue that we should pay a lot of attention and uh, provide a better understanding to the public. Because when we talk about artificial intelligence, as you might know, there, there's a lot of misconception about it. Like people imagine uh, a killer robot, they talk about Terminator. I mean, like if you go to a conference, you are bound to see a Terminator reference at some point. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like that's like strictly speaking, that's like not what we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, algorithms and big data that's allowing us to, you know, make better decisions and automate certain things. But people have a, have such a misunderstanding about this. And then also like the way in which we're using artificial intelligence now, it's kind of subtle, right? It's used by Google, it's used by Facebook, and it's being used in a way that we don't, we're not, uh, like if you don't have the tech literacy, you're not always going to be aware of it. So I think there's a potential that if we don't do this uh, public outreach program, educate people about what AI really is and why this matters, then uh, we might get to a situation where people don't really have a clear conception of what uh, this AI thing is when it'll be affecting so many aspects of their lives. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the argument I think holds the most water. Um, and it's the one that the, you know, the open AI folks make. Um, basically, mm-hmm. that we're at um, very early stages. And like, if bad laws get put in place now, then ramifications will be on uh, going on for a while now. But like the status quo has already been set. And you know, stuff like military relations, or, um, you know, or, or third country policy or development policy, other 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 potential areas of, of research aren't quite as uh, wide open and rife with places to contribute without necessarily having done uh, PhDs in the topic. So with that, let's uh, let's jump in. Uh, so let's start with China. So July 2017, the state council releases a plan. Uh, Dongwu, what's in it? It's the plan that gets cited all the time, right? Uh, we're talking about the next generation AI development plan. So this is... Um, like uh, I think it was Matt Sheehan who um, who described it as a like as a big blueprint of um, things that the government wants to do. They're basically saying these uh, these are the things that we want to achieve as a nation when it comes to AI, and uh, here are the things that we have to address. So it talks about talent acquisition. Uh, it talks about funding allocation. It also talks about you know the need to come up with a safety framework uh, for AI, and also standard uh, like the need for China to come up uh, to standardize uh, this form of technology, and uh, talks about the uh, ethical uh, ethical and social implications of the technology. So it's a big document with a lot of things in it. So next, the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology releases their own uh, more operational level report. And uh-huh. uh, what's what's in that document? So that talks about like more. Uh, so like if the next generation AI plan was a big blueprint, then this one is a more customized, more specific uh, list of demands. Uh, it outlines the uh, guidelines for the industry, government and other stakeholders, but within the uh, time span of uh, 2018 and 2020. So, um, you know, it uh, highlights the importance of supporting research and entrepreneurship and then establishing like a foundation uh, for AI-led uh, industry. 
So what uh, what's what strikes out to you about the way that the Chinese government is going about forming AI policy? So what I find really interesting about it is that it's not a deviation. This is what the Chinese government has been doing, uh, like in terms of other economic development policy. And I feel like it's a continuation, but it works well with AI. It, it works well, given, you know, how big the Chinese market is right now. That's what I find fascinating about the, the Chinese plan. Uh, why so? Because uh, like we're talking about artificial intelligence as if it's, uh, you know, like artificial intelligence policy as, oh, this is a whole new thing. And then the Chinese are doing this thing. And then we're going gaga over here. But then really, like this is the, uh, this is the Chinese government just taking the same approach to governance, to other things that they've uh, worked on before, but to artificial intelligence. What, what is it copy pasting from? And why do you think it's a, a good fit for, um, for the AI questions? Like from the things that I've read before, um, the uh, what is it? The rail, uh, the railroad, uh, Gautier. Uh, oh, what's the what's uh, what's that in English? Uh, high uh, speed, uh, high speed train. Yeah, high speed train. But then, like you know, like chi- the Chinese government often talks about how like they lifted people out of poverty. That's been done through the state, you know, intervening and then working closely with uh, private sector entities and uh, and academics in basically. Um, not so much a planned economy entirely, but then uh, it works in tandem, like in partnership with uh, with private sectors in order to catch up to the rest of the world uh, a little faster than, you know, like a free market would allow them to do. So next up, we have Japan. So mm-hmm. what on earth is Society 5.0? It's a vision that reflects both social and economic goals for uh, for the Japanese government. So like, quote unquote, it's a uh, like society 5.0 is a human centered society that balances economic advancement with the solution of social problems by a system that highly integrates cyberspace and physical space. So basically what they're saying is that the Japanese government, they, re- uh, they, they are interested in utilizing um, artificial intelligence and other forms of uh, emerging technologies in order to not just tackle economic stagnation, which has been the goal that the Abenomics was uh, trying to address, but also to address uh, social issues uh, such as aging population. Like that's one of the big things that gets brought up when uh, Japanese AI policy is talked about. Was society 1.0 like Tokugawa Ieyatsu? I mean, I just, I don't know how we get all the way to five. This is, uh, so, I, this is what's really puzzling me. Yeah, so, uh, Society 1.0 was, uh, I believe that it was either farming or hunter-gatherer. And then Society 4, uh, 3.0 was the Industrial Revolution, so the first Industrial Revolution. 4.0 is the Information uh, Society one. And then 5.0 is the one where, you know, like if 4.0 is where people have to, you know, work directly with data to make things happen, then 5.0 is where we have um, artificial intelligence in order to automate that process of fetching data and making things happen. Like, if only we'll be able to live to see society 7.0. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so Dongwu, what, um, what is the Japanese government doing to push AI forward in, in society 5.0? There are many things to be talked about uh, the Japanese government because I think they're doing uh, interesting things uh, like domestically and also abroad. Um, but domestically, what they did was, uh, uh, first of all, they created the uh, Strategic Council for AI Technology. So uh, one challenge with artificial intelligence and policy is that it's not a 
it's not a technology that gets siloed in one space. So it's not a uh, it's not a thing that you can contain, or it's not like building a rocket engine. Yeah, like, you yeah, know, like yeah. it's not like a it's not like a, a moonshot or something. No, it's not. And then uh, it gets applied to different sectors of society, right? Uh, we are we talking about AI plus agriculture, AI plus health. So, like for government. If it wants to deal with, um, to engage with AI, uh, in order to, gov- uh, to govern AI, then it has to be done from many different ministries. The Japanese government, by creating the strategic council, um, the strategic council, it created a like a control tower where like policies as it relates to artificial intelligence, uh, they would be able to coordinate and work a little more effectively. And uh, I think that uh, that means a lot considering that within many governments, bureaucrats don't necessarily understand uh, the technology. And having a centralized agency or centralized entity that deals with the technology will allow them to gain competence and be able to be more proficient. Sure. So so, so what uh, else is going on in Japan with respect to AI? Yeah. So like uh, the Strategic Council came up with, uh, developed the uh, artificial intelligence technology strategy in 2017. So they basically um, created a roadmap for uh, creating um, the foundation for an AI-based industry. So for Japan, like they talk about addressing social issues and economic issues, but one big target is to upgrade its manufacturing sector because you know Japan is a competitive uh, it's competitive in uh, in the sector but um, they want to ensure that they maintain this competitiveness especially by you know combining AI plus their excellence in robotics to like maintain that edge as a as a strong manufacturer like the strategy that they uh, that they came up with basically assigned national uh, national laboratories and uh, um, the each ministry would be working with the laboratory and also private sector entities, uh, say Toyota or Mitsubishi, uh, in order to develop and test out these technologies and also coordinate policy along the way. Seems like there are some commonalities between what Japan and uh, and China are up to. Yeah, yeah. And what about from a talent perspective? From a, uh, from a talent perspective, okay, so that's the other uh, interesting thing because both of the two countries, uh, like when you read their strategy documents, they emphasize that they uh, that they do not have enough talent, and this is the case for most of the countries at this point in time, I think. But uh, they really, really emphasize that they uh, they uh, they don't have talents to work with AI at many levels, and also that they lack world leading researchers. And this is you know like China and Japan, they're in different situations now. But both of their strategies emphasize the need to invest in uh, training people who would be able to work with this technology, which will, like, according to their plan, will be a key part of their economy. I showed up in China in June 2017, not knowing much more than Ni Hao. Two months later, I was HSK 3.5, confidently having hour-long conversations and traveling alone in rural Yunnan. By the time I started my graduate program that fall, I wasn't the foreigner who forced Chinese groups to switch into English. In my program, there were plenty of students who came to China with no Mandarin background, but none of them got to near the Chinese level I did, largely because they didn't have the right environment to invest in the basics. So where did I make all this critical progress? At CLI in Guilin, one of the few places that teaches Chinese right. In four hours of daily one-on-one sessions with engaged and flexible teachers, and in an environment that supports immersion outside the classroom. Unlike in Beijing or Shanghai, you'll be forced to use your Chinese in daily life, and won't fall into a friend group of expats. 
Guilin isn't your average Chinese small city either. As a tourist hub, it's developed enough to provide you with whatever creature comforts you want, from upscale gyms to chill cafes and fancy malls, all while being surrounded by gorgeous mountains and next to no pollution. CLI isn't just for Mandarin beginners, it supports all levels of learning. It's not just for students either. In fact, its median age is 28. To learn more, go to studycli.org and enter offer code CHINAECONTALK for $100 off. Support for this week's show comes from Brattle Street Educational Counseling. Stressed out about college applications? Brattle Street Educational Counseling can help. They provide guidance throughout the whole process and offer workshops for students looking to work in small groups at a rigorous pace. The workshops include hours of one-on-one attention. From college essays to standardized test prep to interviewing and applications, Brattle Street offers support for any student. Brattle Street, B-R-A-T-T-L-E, street.com. Helping you get where you want to go. So now we have uh, South Korea. In 2017, they get their own master plan. So what's in it? <laughs> yeah, and then they, uh, yeah, so they came up with uh, the mid to long-term master plan in preparation for intelligent information society. But that plan, uh, that Dude, plan I, Korea, it's only 4.0. This is like super lame. <laughs> No, that's not iKorea. Uh, we'll get to iKorea. But then, okay. so there was uh, there was a plan that provided like a thirty year uh, like overview of uh, what the uh, what the Korean government and industry and academia should uh, should be doing on artificial intelligence. But then, as you may know, um, the government got replaced halfway through twenty seventeen. If you remember, um, President Park was impeached and. Uh, a new president came into uh, came into power, and then so the thirty year uh, plan lasted six months. <laughs> I mean, like the, the ideas in the plan uh, kind of stayed, but then the ministry changed. Uh, it ended up changing its name. So from Ministry of Science, ICT, and Future Planning, it became <laughs> Ministry of Science and ICT. Uh, and um, but you know, like President Moon, uh, looking at what's happening around the world and uh, looking at the Korean economy, like he uh, he decided to. Um, you know, commit to, uh, uh, you know, like pursuing, promoting um, artificial intelligence research and development and deployment in Korea by first by creating an organization called the Presidential Committee on the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Okay. And and what's the importance of that? Um, So I, I feel like this is such an interesting body because um, so this one has 25 members. Five of them are from uh, our ministers, like the Japanese uh, strategy where the council is working as a control tower. The committee has uh, ministers from Ministry of Strate- uh, Strategy and Finance, Ministry of uh, Small and Medium uh, Enterprises and Startups, Ministry of Interior and Safety, Ministry of Employment and Labor, and Ministry of Health and Welfare. Uh, so this committee will bring in uh, these ministers, but also, besides the five ministers, the 20 other members are members of civil society and private sector. And it is chaired by, um, by a CEO of a computing company. I think this presents an interesting model um, for governing a technology like artificial intelligence. So a much higher um, or a much higher level of, of private sector influence and cooperation than than what's currently going on in Japan and China? It's a different dynamic, but it's more out there. Like it's something that the government has been promoting quite overtly. And they're promoting it as, you know, like the South Korea's attempt to develop uh, social consensus on how we should be using technologies like artificial intelligence. So now let's come to uh, iKorea 4.0. 
Yeah, so 4.0 refers to uh, 4th Industrial Revolution, but also I points to intelligence, innovation, inclusiveness, and interaction. And I feel like the reference to the 4th Industrial Revolution is very, uh, is interesting to me because it's a language that is getting used a lot in Asia, like 4th Industrial Revolution, but not as much as it does in uh, out in the West. And when I spoke, ab- uh, spoke about this with uh, people in Korea, they were saying, you know, there is an ang- uh, anxiety in Asia about missing out on another industrial revolution. Because in the Asian historiography, you know, the first industrial revolution was the moment when, you know, the West started to move ahead and uh, when Asia started to fall behind. And that led to, like in case of Korea, it led to colonization for China, 100 years of humiliation. And Japan also has its uh, inferiority complex when it comes to dealing with uh, the world outside of Asia. Like during the World War II period, uh, their whole thing was transcend that kind of inferiority. So there, uh, there is an element of anxiety uh, about that historical fact that, you know, we missed out on the first thing. So we better not miss out on the next one. Sure. I mean, this, that's, that's super interesting, but I think also um, leads into my, my earlier point about peak AI policy. If, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're worried about missing out on the industrial revolution um, because of like one of the many potential, uh, you know, of the 20 potential technologies that could change the world over the next 30 years. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I'm not I'm not bought in, but the idea that great divergence anxieties are feeding into East Asian AI policy, I think, is a is a super fascinating one. Yeah. And then, you know, like I uh, I was a history major, too, and then I have an anxiety about bringing this kind of broad interpretation. But, you know, like in my conversations with everyone in China, Japan and South Korea, the language of catching up just came up over and over again, you know, mm-hmm. like catching up vis-a-vis who? Like, who are we competing against? And then when you look at the Chinese, uh, uh, the next generation AI development plan, it talks about becoming number one. And the South Korean plan talks about becoming number four. But (laughs) seriously, like, what's... what 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 ranking are we talking about? Uh, I, that that element of anxiety is definitely there, and an argument could be made. The whole reason the Great Leap Forward started, right, was because Mao decided that he wanted to catch up to British steel production, um, and uh-huh. it was this it was this big anxiety from a from a like you know from a from a relative economic standpoint. Um, so to see <laughs> those sort of like deep psychological. Uh, worries being played out in in 2019 on something that's that seems pretty emotionless, right? AI policy is super interesting and and super depressing. I think it uh, it is really depressing. And then you know what? Like, and one of the conclusions that I make uh, that I've made through the report is that you know this is seen as a national project by all of them. Like ultimately, this is seen uh, AI. However, uh, like. I'm not a person who believes that there are like an AI race is a good thing or that we can objectively like measure a country's AI capacity uh, and compare like next to each other. Uh, It's a very different type of technology. But, you know, all of these countries, uh, the three countries here, they're looking at artificial intelligence as a national project. It's a, it's a continuation of development, uh, you know, like the developmental state attitude. It, it is a super weird, weird paradigm because like at the end of the day, you know, it's not something where you can say, oh, I have like 
you know, a hundred missiles. I have like a hundred AIs and, and China only has 60. So then we're going to have like AI primacy or whatever. I mean, these, they're just algorithms that you can um, apply in lots of di- different situations. And, and so much of the research is public and the best research that's going on in the world is in private companies that aren't necessarily um, connected to governments and sort of the governments are trying to apply it in their own, in their own ways. But, but the idea that this is, you know, something that uh, people, you, that the same mindset that's used to like build up steel production production or, um, you know, nuclear missile capability is now um, being thrown into something that has such different dynamics. I'm actually getting more and more convinced that the world does need better AI policy. I think you've I think you've I think you've turned my uh, uh, turn my head around. Uh, if this is <laughs> if, if the dynamics of, um, you know, catch up and you know national competition are so are so present, maybe we do need more 20, 20 and 30 somethings telling folks that this maybe isn't necessarily the right way to uh, uh, the right path to go down. So let's come now to uh, to Canada, a dark horse okay. AI powerhouse, you argue. Um, well, that's not the language that I used in my report, for sure. Yeah. You know, like uh, when it comes to AI, it's a fascinating place. Is the new like OVO album going to have some like, you know, AI produced beat or something? I don't know. Nice. I love Canada. I really do. I mean, like... <laughs> Oh man, this is such an American. Uh, like, it's, you're definitely an American. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So, in, in all seriousness, Canada is an exciting place for AI because, as you may have heard, there were periods of AI winters where, um, you know, like AI was seen as a technology that's okay. Like, it, it sounds cool in theory, but the, there's not enough data, and then the computing power. Uh, like we're not there as to be able to realize these theories uh, of artificial intelligence. So, you know, like AI research funding was getting cut all over the world and uh, the discipline really suffered. But during that time period, the Canadian government kept investing uh, in this research. At that time, why did they believe in it? Where, whereas other governments were, were, were more quick to, pu- to pull the plug? Oh, uh, it's not so much that the Canadian government was intent on like, we're going to capitalize on like our research on AI 20 years down the road. It was not so much like that, but it's the funding model for higher education institutes. You know, uh, the government kept uh, providing funding for this uh, like research topic that seemed to be a little bit uh, wacky throughout the winter. And that's uh, that's how like people like Richard uh, Sutton, Jeffrey Hinton or Yosha Benjo um, all ended up in Canada and stayed there. You know, like Richard Sutton, he's uh, he's an American and uh, now he's based at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. And, uh, you know, he's known as one of the founders of reinforcement learning and, uh, you know, DeepMind, which created AlphaGo, AlphaGo, has an office in Edmonton. Have you have you ever heard of Edmonton before? Uh, yeah, uh, Edmonton Oilers. Come on. Oh yeah, <laughs> you watch hockey. Okay, yeah. So that's my Canadian hometown. But you know, University of Alberta is ranked uh, number three after Tsinghua and Carnegie Mellon on artificial intelligence in like the CS rankings. So mm-hmm. um, and people like Richard Sutton is leading the team within that organization, and also um, you know like folks like Jeffrey Hinton and Yosha Bengio, uh, those are uh, them and uh, Ian LeCun, so um, the Facebook guy. Mm-hmm. Um, three of them just got the Turing Award, um, which is like the Nobel Prize for uh, computing science, uh, and they're seen as the founders, uh, the biggest contributors about deep learning, which is like one of the hottest machine learning technologies now. So um, like. Because of that early investment, we have all of these uh, world-class, like literally world-class researchers here in Canada. 
and um, you know they uh, they keep attracting uh, top students into their programs. So the Canadian government uh, realized that AI could really uh, provide an advantage for the Canadian economy and attract a lot of talented people. So they decided to invest uh, $125 million in a national strategy for AI. Right now, uh, we see not just students coming to Canada, but major companies uh, like Amazon and Google setting up their shops in cities like Edmonton, Montreal, and Toronto. And also um, at the foundation, uh, we track investment flows from uh, from Asia. And we attracted uh, $580 million worth of investments for AI, specifically from companies like Samsung, LG, uh, Didi, Mahindra, and Fujitsu between 2017 and 2018. So like, this is really becoming um, an area of interest for uh, Asian investors. And especially combining with um, the concern over the lack of talent, Asian companies and Asian governments, they're, sending, uh, they're trying to access um, the talent that they lack by establishing research centers here in Canada. Sure. Let's now turn to um, AI principles. And uh, you have a really nice table comparing China, Canada, Japan, and South Korea, and what they think about the, the main sort of ethical questions that come along with the development in AI. What were the similarities and differences that, that stood out to you over the course of this research? So, like, of course, uh, there will be, like, differences in semantics and the details. But my main takeaway is that they all care about pretty much the same thing when it comes to the technology, you know, like um, it's not like the Chinese are not concerned about um, the potential malicious uses of um, AI to breach privacy. Like they do mention that respect for privacy is important. There is a concern for the technology to be used in a responsible way, in a way that benefits people and that it's uh, centered around well-being of uh, human beings. So uh, words like accountability, responsibility, they all come up. So like when it comes to the technology, I would argue that all of the four countries, policymakers or people who are involved in uh, in this space, they understand that uh, the potential uh, implications of um, using AI maliciously and that they all recognize that there is a need for all of us to work together in order to prevent those malicious uses. The difference is then the context in which those ethical principles come into play. So for example, um, yeah, we should respect privacy. We can agree on that. But what does privacy mean in the Chinese context? And what does privacy mean in, like, say, the Canadian context? One of the most fascinating conversations that I had um, for this research, I was speaking with a, uh, with a philosopher who specializes on like East-West comparative philosophy. He, he was saying, you know, in, in the West, we're freaking out about privacy, but we're just handing out our data to private entities. But like, wouldn't you rather give those to government? If our data goes to someone, then we should give it to somebody that we can trust more. But in case of uh, Asia, then there is more trust with government. But in case of um, the West, we don't trust the government as much. So the context makes the difference, even though like the, maybe we might be saying the, the same thing in, the, uh, in these ethical guidelines. So we've had a number of episodes on this show about the US-China technology tensions and competition. I'm curious for your perspective on what the impacts are to these third countries like uh, South Korea, Japan, um, and Canada that we've been discussing on this episode? First of all, like, uh, we need to establish the premise that um, the, the, war, uh, the trade war, quote-unquote, between China and the U.S. is not just trade war, but it's also a political war. It's a tech war. 
it's an attempt for um, each country to maintain its edge on its uh, tec- uh, technological superiority, perpetuating that discourse of the AI race, which we agreed that it's not the best way, uh, best way of framing it. So as I said earlier, um, this is a national project for Korea, uh, Korea and Japan, and also China. And uh, increasingly, uh, given how, uh, how much of uh, this having talent or um, having the prestige of uh, being the number one or number four in AI, like how much weight that carries within those national policies, it really suggests that you know, this is becoming a part of international competition. And we see that uh, in the U.S. and China relations as well, like competition of technolo- uh, technological superiority is really highlighted. For Korea and Japan, then, they're stuck in a very challenging situation. They're so close to China. When I spoke to uh, people in industry and government in uh, Japan and Korea, they were expressing their anxiety about uh, the rise of the Chinese in general, but also how they would have to compete against them for exports, for manufacturing, uh, for their industry. And adding to that is um, this competition over norms, um, because China wants to be basically the uh, uh, the United States, when it comes to internet, they want to set the standards. They want uh, they want to be able to shape the norms uh, in the international community. So you've had a number of conversations with uh, folks involved in AI in Japan and South Korea. I'm curious how they, um, you know, how what role uh, U.S. China or the rise of China plays in uh, in their mind as they're thinking about these sorts of issues. Overall, there's a uh, there's a lot of anxiety uh, in Japan and Korea that I've uh, that I've spoken with. They're concerned about having to compete with the uh, the Chinese, and then also they're such a big part of their trade agenda as well. Like especially in case of South Korea and Japan, because of their proximity, they're economically dependent on uh, on China. So like the dynamic around the world becomes really interesting because as the U.S. and China is Getting, uh, you know, the tension between the two continues to grow. And then also there is the issue of um, um, competition over tech. In case of the United States, it, ha- uh, it has been trying to uh, limit uh, the growth of the Chinese, um, the, uh, the Chinese tech industry by explicitly banning export of um, uh, necessary materials to China on the grounds of national security, um, as we as we saw with uh, Huawei and ZTE cases. So, um, especially I imagine mm-hmm. as the as the tech trade war um, continues its never ending grind, uh, Canada continues to uh, you know look look ever better in contrast uh, with what's going on in the U.S. I'm curious if there's been any sort of like ethnic profiling, the sorts of things that you've seen in the U.S. of late where researchers with an Asian background are, are feeling less comfortable in their places of work, um, feeling discriminated against given the current tensions. So not as overt as in the States. I think if anything, uh, the the concerns that have materialized are, you know, if there is a funding within Canadian post-secondary institution that is tied to uh, like a, an American partner, then that may compromise their uh, ability to continue working on that research project for, uh, like, uh, say, a researcher of Chinese uh, ethnicity. But there has been no like uh, no concrete move to do that here in Canada, and also, um, but. We are hearing some chatters and concerns uh, from, like anecdotes from uh, post-secondary institutions. So uh, some of the academics are talking. Uh, they're talking about, you know, like should should we continue receiving investment from Huawei? 
should we continue uh, working with the Chinese researchers? So like those conversations are materializing little by little, but we're not close to how things are in the United States. Dong Woo Kim, thanks for being a part of China Econ Talk. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from SupChina. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Shine